0: John chapter three beginning with verse sixteen. As I'm reading this and thinking about this, just when I thought that first John was challenging enough, there he goes and gets even more challenging. Verse 16 says, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, you could put sister in, in there as well, okay? But, so it, it's talking about the family, family of God. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and, the, and love one another as he gave us commandment. So, Father, we ask that you speak to our hearts in this passage. Lord, help us to identify those places that we are loving in word or tongue rather than in deed and in truth. We thank you that you are the illustration, the ultimate illustration of what it means to love, and that you laid down your life for us and demonstrated your love toward us that, uh, while we were yet sinners, that you died for us. So we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Again, we do pray for all the fires and just pray for rain. Lord, we just ask that you'd bring a storm and just and put this thing out. We do pray for those that are, that are suffering, having trouble breathing. Just ask that you'd put your hand upon them. Pray for Jeannie who is healing. Pray for Guy who is here, but he's healing as well. And, and Lord, that you would just continue to be merciful and gracious to us. And we do thank you, Lord, for your great grace. Not only by which you have saved us, but your great grace by which you sustain us. And which you maintain us. So be with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. John continues this passage that we looked at last week uh, in John uh, chapter 3, or 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, where where you have this, this contrast between the children of the devil and the children of God, this contrast between love and hate. Uh, actually the children of God, the children of the devil, then you have righteousness and, and evil. And then righteousness from the children of God yields love. Uh, evil from the children of the devil yields hatred. And and so he, he's expanding this and opening this up even just a bit more and, and really addressing this to the children of God. And he says, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And again, he's, he's referring here, to Jesus, and so if you, if you really want a good, accurate definition of what true, complete love is, you look at Jesus, and you look at his sacrifice on the cross, and you look at, at what he has done for us, and, and, and as I prayed earlier, uh, where Paul writes in Romans that God demonstrates his love toward us while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. And I, and I, sometimes I think, I think we have to stop and pause and think about that a minute. Um, because I don't know about you, but there are times that I feel like God is, maybe he doesn't love me as much as he used to. Now, that's, that's a lie, all right? That's from the pit. But you, you, we encounter things, we experience things, and you're just like, wow, God, I thought you loved me. Right. And and of course, our definition of what it means for God to love us sometimes is very different than God's understanding and his actual demonstration of love toward us. Does that make sense? In other words, we we place expectations upon God that, that we feel like that we're immune to so living in an area close to the national forests everywhere and we shouldn't have to breathe smoke, right? The, you know, for example. Um, and and um I, I remember one time a, 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 a this guy's a friend of mine, and uh, he decided to sell his house after it took out a second. Okay, um, and and he, he he had it on the market for a hundred thousand dollars over what where it was comped from. In other words, he, he was he was overpriced by that's a lot of money, and and he just believed that God in His love would bring along some sucker. To buy that house $100,000 over market value. Well, guess what happened? Can you guess what happened? God didn't bring a person to buy the house. He he ended up foreclosing. And, 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 and that's what I mean by some of these unrealistic expectations. And sometimes it is that that in God's love for us, he takes off the training wheels and he lets us ride the bike without the training wheels. And you ever remember teaching your kid how to ride a bike without training wheels? You know, it, it was it was, uh, you know, it's like you buy a helmet, you buy shin guards, you buy elbow pads, you buy wrist, you know, you, you know, uh, you know. I know some people they even you know mouth protectors. Um, um, I seem to recall in the back of my head somewhere some poor kid riding down the street with a full on football helmet, right? Um. But And I hated teaching my kids how to ride a bike because you know what it meant? They were going to fall and they were going to get hurt. And, and I, I just felt so bad about it. But it was, it was, really, it's a rite of passage, isn't it? That it, this was something that they needed to learn. And, um, and th- the thing is, and you probably remember this. I've seen videos even of my grandkids when they first got the training wheels off. And they finally got to the point where they weren't scared anymore. And that's when they're really dangerous, right? But the joy on their face, that they finally got rid of those stupid training wheels, right and of course, and, and uh, this the joy of being free, the joy of taking that next step. And we don't experience that kind of joy unless God takes the training wheels off. But it's difficult. It's difficult. There's this idea of common grace, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, James tells us. But there's also this idea of, 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 of God at times does intercede. And I think I'm thankful when he does. And I pray that he does. I think our prayer life should, should expect the miracle. I really do. I think our prayer life should expect the miracle and we should ask for the miracle. Doesn't mean it's always going to happen. And so it also means that there are times I'm probably praying that are really not in accordance with God God's will, but I'm I'm praying my heart, right? And if, and if I put it out there, and again, go, go back to the passage we looked at at the beginning in, in 1 Kings chapter 18. Seven times Gehazi goes out, and there's not a cloud. Eventually there's this little cloud that starts to form over the ocean. And And this idea of persevering and and what I have found is is when I'm really pressing into the things of uh, that I'm desiring of God in prayer, I'm really pressing into God in prayer. Some of those impure motives, you, you know what I mean by impure motives, right? Some of the, I mean, some of those impure motives seem to kind of go by the wayside. You know, in Pure Motives, I remember a guy talking about how he prayed that God would give him this nice car because if God gave him this nice car, he would pick up all the kids in the neighborhood and take them to church, you know. And and he knew, of course, later on, he he shares that story. He was kind of trying to play less, make a deal with God, right? Yeah, and, um, but as we press into the things of God and press into God in prayer. There's something about that where it's, it's a purifying effect, I believe. Because I don't know about you, but I don't like it when my prayers are not answered. Am I alone here? No, I don't like it when my prayers are not answered. And if I decide that I have an issue that I need to pray about right here and now, as soon as I'm done praying, I'm expecting a miracle. And then all of a sudden, there's that wrestling that takes place because more often than not, the miracle does not take place. And it challenges everything I believe about God. But I know that God loves us. And the thing what I have learned, uh, when, when I encounter those situations in life or those, even those passages in the Bible that I don't really understand, uh, I lean back on the things that I do understand. I go back on those things that God has declared. I go back to places like this where it says, by this we know, we know love because he laid down his life for us. And, and, and I wish the verse had stopped there. Sometimes. Because then it says, "And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren." This this idea of laying down your life, um, defin- <clears throat> definition here it, in in the Greek, it, it it talks about giving something up, it talks about setting something aside, it talks about removing something, and and. That's the idea of when Christ came in the flesh, he set aside his deity. Now, he was still God, but he set aside his godly privilege. Does that make sense? He set that aside. He veiled it, if you will. We see it unveiled on the Mount of Transfiguration where his glory shines uh, so bright. Um, but we're, we're called it to... Set these things aside. We're called to lay these things down. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his own love toward us. That while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. So again here is the example. What Jesus did for us. And and I, I had to tear into the word ought. Because you know what it means. You know what it's referring to. You know what it's saying to us. It says that we're obligated. That's what it says. Because that it, the word literally means in the Greek to be under obligation. To be under obligation to meet certain social or moral expectations. To owe someone. Or is it Paul, Paul tells Timothy, owe no one nothing except for love. Which is what he's talking about, kind of referring to the same idea here, is that we ought to lay down, we ought to be able to remove, we ought to be able to set aside, uh, we, we ought to be able to uh, give things up for the brethren. Now, I'm, I'm quick segue and then I'm going to get back into the text. This is talking about church family. It's pretty clear here in the text. There are other texts, and I don't have in my notes, and I don't, want to, I don't want to go chase a rabbit trail this morning, but I do want you to say that we, we don't want to read this and say, yes, I have to be nice to people in the church and forget everybody else. All right? That's not, that's not what this is saying. I tend to believe, and I could be wrong. Oh, my goodness, I'm going to teach you something that I could be wrong, huh? Well, never mind, I won't go there. Uh, no, I, I tend to believe that, yes, there is a preferential treatment. For the family of God. But I also know, again, as I've said before, God demonstrates his love toward us why we're yet sinners. God so loved the world. Thank you. What does the world mean? It means everybody. And there are some groups that like to take that and twist it and turn it and try to read into what it says. The world simply means the world is referring to everyone. But in the context here, John is saying that since Christ laid down his life for you, you ought to lay down your life for the brethren. Sometimes that's a whole lot easier said, which we'll talk about in a moment, than done. But whoever has this world's goods, sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now this word... Goods, but interesting because it's the word bios in the Greek, which is where we get our name for like biosphere, which refers to what? Life. If this this word in the Greek bios is very tightly uh, knitted together with the Greek word for life, which is zoe, which would be spelled Z-O-E. They're there. They're not really interchangeable, but they they have a connection. Does that make some sense? In other words, when when I talk about bios, I'm referring to that which gives life. Those things that are necessary for life. Things like food, things like clothing, things like shelter. Life and the activities that are associated with it. That's what this word refers to. So if we have the, the, the world's goods, and, and this idea, it's the Greek word cosmos for worlds. It, it simply means the material goods that we have that are necess- necessary for life. Food, clothing, shelter, all right? Water. That's food, anyway. If we have those things and we see that those that don't have them and we withhold them, Then how does the love of God abide in you? Again, this is a tough one. Because in 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 the twentieth century twentieth century sorry. Okay, I'm 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 twenty years behind. Okay. Twenty first century. Didn't have any coffee this morning, that was why. 21st century America, we all live in a pretty high standard. Not everybody, but most of us do. We live in a pretty high standard. Compared to the living conditions and living standards of most of the world, but particularly the third world, we're considered rich. And there are times that people will want to guilt you into these things. But one of the things I'm always wanting to be careful of and um, am concerned over is to make sure that people have a place to sleep, some clothes to wear, and food to eat. I think that's important. I, I, I talked with a guy, this is quite a long time ago, and, and he had a, a rebellious adult teenage child. Okay, and a, how, we'll does, we even shift it around. A re- rebellious child who's an adult, okay? And uh, he asked her to leave. I mean, she was just creating all kinds of havoc. He asked her to leave. And he says, I'm not going to support you. I'm not going to do this, this, and that. And, and I said to him, I said, that's fine, but make sure this person, make sure she has something to eat. Even if you have to bring her over for dinner, make sure she has something to eat and, and to, uh, to care for her in that way. Um, eventually, that situation as it sometimes does, not always, but eventually that situation worked itself out and there was a restoration. But this idea of caring for people is a means of how we demonstrate our love for them. See, love is tangible. Love has a substance to it. And again, I think often it is is that when we think about love, we think, we think about this, this, this emotional love or this, this, this romantic love. Uh, this is not the type of love that is described here in the Bible it's, uh, with the word agape, which is one way to pronounce it. But anyway, it's this unconditional love whereby that we, we, we demonstrate that the love of God, the agape of God, dwells in us by how we deal with other people. Which is very, very, very hard at times. I did benevolence ministry, particularly when I, we do it here when the need comes up. Uh, I I was doing it almost on a half time basis. I was going to say full time, but that would mean to, but it, it happened very frequently when I was an assistant pastor in South Lake Tahoe, because there's a lot of people who decide they're going to go to Lake Tahoe and live off the mountains, and and then all of a sudden the snow falls, right? You got homeless people with five feet of snow on the ground. You know, the, you know. sometimes the best thing you can do is buy them a ticket off the mountain, which we did. And, and to know when I was being scammed and to know when there was an actual need. And, uh, boy, it was really, it was because a week did not go by when I was faced with that to make that decision whether we were going to help somebody or not. Um, and uh, I, I think I've shared some of them before, uh, some good stories of where I, 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 I hope and pray today that God is still doing a work in some people's lives who gave their life to the Lord and then decided, I don't want to live this way anymore. So it's like, okay, well, you got a family member. We can put you on the bus and send you to, which we did a few times. But then there's those other ones where they were just looking for... Something for free so they could continue their habit. Now, again, this is referring to family in the text. I don't always know the difference. And yes, there are some people who claim to be Christians. There are even some people who are Christians that are a little, now nobody here, okay? (laughs) Nobody here. But they're scammers. And, and wanting to be a good steward of God's money. And what do you do? And it's a very difficult call. What I, what I believe, though, is that, that if we as a church give to someone, that, that giving is no longer, that money is no longer our responsibility. It's been given to them. Now they are the steward of that money or whatever. And they'll have to answer to God. You know, and, and so John's saying here is this is how you demonstrate love. But this is how you demonstrate that the love of God abides. Remember that word abide, right? Dwelling in, remaining in, being a part of. In other words, if, if you are a child of God, this idea of love abiding in you is a given. Even when you don't want it to be. And sometimes you don't want it to be, don't, do you? You, you? you get tired. How does the love of God abide in him? And so he goes on, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but indeed in deed and truth. Now this is this is this is tough because because it's not real clear what he's talking about. Word or tongue, message or speech, right? What's interesting about this, though, because you can compare here where it it talks about um, word and deed. Those are two contrasts. Tongue and truth are two contrasts. And so, have you ever met people that I hate this term, but I'm going to use it because I'm sure you've heard it. They talk a good religion. Few of you have. They talk a good religion, but they don't really, they don't really live it. There's a lot of words, but there's not a whole lot of deed. And I, I make people mad at times. Believe it or not. Um. Especially when I start hearing the war stories. Especially people my age, because, of, oh, back during the Jesus movement, which, I, you know, that's great, that's wonderful. You know, all the things that God did through you when you were, you know, on fire for Jesus, right? Ever heard those I've, I've heard a lot of that. And it's great and it's wonderful, but what, how does that inform your Christian life today? What you did 40 years ago that's great and it's wonderful and you know, you'll stand before God. God's going to say, you know, well done. But he's also going to ask you about what you did today. So are, are, are we living our faith, the faith of love, the, 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 this, this expression of love that, that we have because we have been given so much love by God Therefore, we become like this conduit where the love of God flows through us. Does that make sense? We become this conduit and, and are, we, are we just giving lip service to it? Or are we really doing the work to meet the needs of others? Even if it's Sacrificial. Is, you know you, you can come here and fool everybody you know and, and talk up the good religion you know The character Christian godly character really is who you are when no one else is looking and who you are when no one else is looking will inform how you live in the light, when you're living in front of everybody else. I remember a guy that, we both know him. He told me one time his grandfather, he told his grandfather he wanted to be a preacher, and his, his grandfather looked at him and said, I'd rather see a sermon out of you than hear one. I thought, wow, that, that was a wise old man. Word and deed, there's a contrast. Tongue and truth. Tongue can be the opposite of, of, of love and truth. In other words, we, we, can, we can love through insincere motives. I've known people that, that saw the church as their, their, uh, their uh, a resource. I was going to say something real sarcastic, but I forgot even what it was. Anyway, but as a resource to be able to get their honeydew list done. So they would, they would talk it up, right? They would, they, would, they would speak, they would love in tongue. But there was an insincere motive. Hey, can you do this? Can you do that? And, and so we, not only do we have to be careful that we don't slip into this ourselves, but we have to be careful that, that we don't become victimized. by those who would rather love you in tongue and in word rather than in deed and in truth. So, the insincere love, the mixed motives, and, I, and again, this goes back to what I said earlier about prayer. I think sometimes that we really have to press in in prayer toward things because all of us have some form of mixed motives. We do. Is who we are. You know, and, and so th- th- to press into to God, to press in in his presence, to press in in prayer, to allow the light and the flame of his truth. And Re- Revelation describes him uh, with flames of fire, right? He sees those things. He sees through them which really goes, goes, goes uh, in really to the next passage that, that we're about to look at. And by this we know, verse 19, that we are of the truth and we assure ourselves before, excuse me, we assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. So, if if you thought if you thought that that uh, verse eighteen could be kind of difficult to interpret, now we just got it, it just gets worse and or harder, uh, and it, really to to really think about God, what are you, what are you saying here? Because what one of the things though that that I believe this is talking about is connected with verse eighteen, because loving indeed and loving in truth gives us confidence. Confidence in what? Or confidence of what? Of or in? Choose your preposition there. Confidence that we are, in fact, of the truth. Confidence that we are, in fact, of the household of faith. I mean, no, no show of hands here, but do you ever doubt your salvation? Do you ever wonder, well, am I truly of the household of faith? I, I, I think those are important questions to ask yourself, to be honest with you. Because, among other things, that is part of working out your own salvation in fear and trembling, as, as Paul said in the Philippians. John's saying here, if if your life is manifest as a person who loves God, therefore, because you love God, you're willing to love others in a tangible way. That that is a a mark of someone who is truly uh, of the faith, someone who has truly been born again. And so there's this idea of of assurance that we have. And and I, I think... I think verses uh, 19 through, through 21, among other things, is, is John is, is basically, um, he's seeking to reassure people who have sensitive consciences. And I think God's desire is that we don't necessarily live, live before him in this trembling form of anxiety, but in, but in a sense of a settled peaceful confidence. I think that's, that's what John is talking about here. Because if we are truly honest, we don't always love indeed and truth. Now, do we? Yikes. You know, and you, you just wish at times you could go back in time, back an hour back a day, back a week, back a month, you know, and 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 re, revisit those those situations where you felt like God may have given you an opportunity to love indeed and in truth and you passed it by. You get you gave it lip service, tongue. Rather than a tangible act of love. That was almost a disaster. Okay. Uh, some of you caught that, didn't you? <laughs> like whoops. Okay. Um, this idea of loving, indeed, and in truth signifies that, that we, have, we have an honest, open heart that points toward the gospel. That points toward the gospel. What do I mean by that? I think this, this is, to me, the meat of this whole passage. What is the gospel? Okay, I know that 1 Corinthians 15 describes for us the gospel. We're not going to turn there. But in a nutshell, what is the gospel? We have sinned, but God loves us. God sent Jesus to die for us. If we receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then our sins will be forgiven, and we will have an eternal place with God in his presence. That's one way to say it, but I think think it covers the gospel. All right? Most of you, if not all of you in this room, have prayed to receive Christ and given your life to him. And so, by making that commitment to Jesus, and Jesus who is faithful and cleanses us of all of our sins, by making that commitment and having that transaction of being cleansed, um, that part of the gospel has been completed. But I think the problem in our thinking, often in as evangelicals, is that we we confine the gospel. Just to that one transaction of I am a sinner. I confess my sins. I ask Christ to come into my heart. He does come into my heart. Therefore, I am now born again. And according to 2 Corinthians, I am now a new creation. And I think we confine the gospel just to that transaction. Because the gospel, I believe, is more than that. Because the gospel is lived out. The gospel is lived out by what Jesus said to us again, and I go here a lot to you guys, Luke 9, if any man come after me, let him take up his cross daily, deny himself and follow me. Because part of the transaction of the gospel by which we were saved is what? Christ had to die for us. Christ had to love in deed and in truth, not in word and tongue. Does that make sense? So there is the element of the gospel, the fact that we have been forgiven, the fact that we receive what? What? G-R-A-C-E, grace. We receive God's unmerited favor. We receive the grace of God uh, as we, not only to save us, but to continue us in our sanctifying, becoming more like Christ That gospel message that saved us is also the gospel message that sustains us. Does that make sense? And it is the gospel message by which we have been called to live. Back to verse 16 again. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The act of love and deed and truth by which we are saved is still the act of love of deed and truth that we are called to live in. And so by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Again, he's speaking to those who, because again, we all fail, don't we? We all, we all, nobody gets a hundred on this. At least I don't. I haven't met anybody. But this is part of the calling for us to not only receive the gospel but to live the gospel. This whole thing points to the gospel. Um, and if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. I read so many opinions on this, this verse, and I didn't like hardly any of them. Maybe I'm wrong, okay? But it, it, it what is John talking about here? But I did like what one, one commentator said. If our hearts condemn us, that's not necessarily the significant thing. What do I mean by that? I'll let you think about that a second. Some of you are starting to squirm. I can see it. I'm like, what in the world are you talking about? Notice I said not necessarily. There is such a thing as a conviction of the heart, is there not? Okay? So I know some of you are trying to run around this already. I can, I can see the wheels turning in your heads. As I have shared with you a few times, there are times that I don't feel saved. There are times that I don't feel like a Christian. And there are times that I probably don't act like one. And the same is true, I don't know about your feelings, but I know there are times that you don't act like one. Okay, I feel better now. And so then when I think about those times, when I think about those times that I had failed, my heart condemns me. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and what? cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So I do that. And then I still feel condemned. You ever been there? Don't worry, you will. I've been there. I feel like at times I live there. It's like I can never get past my own sin. Even after it's been con- confessed. And that's why I'm, I'm saying that That whether my heart condemns me or not, that's not necessarily the significant thing. I do what I can to maintain my right relationship with God in confession of my sin. And I hope you guys confess your sins every day. Some of you probably need to do it more than once a day. I'm kidding. Because I love what the rest of this verse says. He's greater than our heart. Because I can go through my day, my month, my week, my hour. Notice I mixed it up purposely. And I can just feel horrible. And feel very uneasy. About my relationship to God. And my heart feels heavy. And it feels weighed down. My heart or my soul. I think the two of them are essentially the same thing. And I know some of you haven't bought into that yet. And that's fine. But my innermost being feels heavy with sin or unsettled. And then you go through all the what ifs of life. If I had only done this, what if I had done that? You ever do this? Of course you do. Some of you more than others. God is greater than all that. He knows all things. He knows your struggles. He knows the difficulties that you deal with. He knows the inconsistencies that you have, both externally and also internally. He knows you. Oh, no. And he loves you anyway. See, this is all about confidence. He knows you. He knows He knows your inconsistency. I want to use some other terms, but I'm trying to be nice here. He knows what you're about, okay? And he loves you anyway. And if we if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God in whatever we ask and receive from Him because we keep His commandments and we do things that are pleasing in His sight. Which I want to spend some more time and look at this probably next week. Because that, this is another, this is a pretty, there's a lot here. But I want to end this with this idea that if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. What, what I love is... Um, In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, right around verse 11. Jeremiah twenty-nine eleven. Okay. What's the context of Jeremiah? Jeremiah is a weeping prophet, right? Because God's people have sinned to such a degree that they're getting kicked out of the pool. Well, that's a nice way of saying they're getting kicked out of, out of Judea. They're going into captivity for 70 years and the Babylonians have basically surrounded the city and, and, and Jeremiah is the lone prophet of God who's saying surrender to them and they will treat you well and, and it will be good for you and you will go to Babylon and you will plant vineyards and orchards and this and you will reestablish your life there. And all the false prophets were saying, no, God's going to conquer them. God's going to... Do away with them, but it was God's plan to bring His people into captivity. It was God's pe- plan to bring His people into captivity. Did you hear that? Well, John, I'm going to let you wrestle with because I'm not going. I'm sure you're, most of you are familiar with this, but that's a difficult concept to wrap your head around. But even in the Mix of all of this going on where where God is saying, yeah, you're going to go into captivity. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. When there is the judgment of God, there is always, always the hope of restoration. There is always the hope of restoration. And then he goes on and he says to them in verse 11, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart, and he knows all things. Because he has told us here in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. God is greater than your heart. And even at times when it seems that God's purposes, plans, and actions in your life seem to be severe and harsh. He knows the thoughts that he has toward you. Thoughts of good, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. John is reiterating that truth here in 1 John chapter 3, as he says that we can be assured because God is greater than our hearts. Amen? So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your great faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, that you have these thoughts toward us. Thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give us a future and a hope. We know that that which you promised, that which you have declared, you will fulfill. And so, Lord, we we claim this this morning we claim this this morning over our lives that your thoughts toward us are thoughts of peace and not of evil to give us a future and a hope and so lord we pray that in to our lives today we pray that into our lives this afternoon this evening tomorrow when we rise we thank you lord that you are greater than our hearts and even though our hearts might condemn us that you you By the blood of the lamb you have us covered and cleansed and made whole and made righteousness and right in your sight. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to do that work in our lives. Protect us physically from everything that's out there. Continue to do that work in us. We'd ask that you would enable us to love indeed and in truth for your great name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you guys.